Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Happy Mother's Day. If you haven't already, let me invite you to open to the passage Stephanie just read, Colossians chapter 3. The way the passage is broke up is a little bit different. We're covering the first verse of chapter, of chapter 4 as well. So it's 3.18 through 4.1. And on this Mother's Day, we're looking at rules of Christian households. Providentially, we picked uh, Colossians. We really, as Nathan and I were, were dreaming about Colossians and we're getting really excited to go through Colossians, we, we lined up Colossians to land with made alive was fall on Easter. And we didn't know that, that in God's providence that rules for Christian living would fall on, on Mother's Day. <clears throat> and this, is, this has been what we've going, we've been going through Colossians now seven weeks. And the big theme that we've been examining in Colossians is, <clears throat> excuse me, the centrality of Christ. So he's been talking about how big Jesus is. And then he's been exploring what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? So he's, he's calling the Colossians, hey guys, just as you received this Jesus, just as you put your faith in Jesus, just as you've trusted this Jesus who is over all things, continue to walk in him. So being, being rooted and built up in him. Don't, don't let anyone take you captive to empty philosophy or deceit. Don't let anyone captivate you by a teaching that's not centered and rooted and focused on Christ. Focus on Christ. And he says, through faith, the Christians, these Colossians, they've been united to Jesus. They've been uh, linked with him. They've, their former self has died with Jesus, and they have a new self that's risen with Jesus. A, a, the former self that was based on self-centeredness and what is in it for me has been killed, and this new self is to reflect the very life of Christ, the very character of Christ, the very virtues of Christ. This is what we looked at last week. A person who has been united with Christ has died to their former self, and they've been raised to walk a new kind of life. And we saw that this new kind of life was, was marked by putting off. So continually putting to death former habits, former behaviors, old character, and becoming a new kind of person, becoming truly human, becoming a person that is expressing the very character of Jesus. And some of these character traits we looked at were putting away anger and wrath and malice and slander that has no place, lying, and putting on the character of Jesus. This happens as the Colossians were to let the word of God, let the word of Christ, let the gospel dwell in them richly as they sing songs and make melody in their hearts, as they teach one another and admonish one another, whatever they do, Paul says, whatever you guys do, do so in dependence in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks and honor to him. So he is the, the, the motivator, the center force, the one that we are to give all thanks to. We're, we're to do all this as a representative of Jesus. And this is our calling. This is our calling as, as it says, the, the same calling for the Colossians, that we are to live as God's holy people, as dearly beloved, to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and love. This is, where we've, this is kind of a quick summary of where we've come so far in Colossians. And now Paul is going to switch gears to get a little more practical. And how does this, how does this new life in Christ play itself out? And, and we're going to see how it plays out. He, he's addressing wives and husbands. He's going to address fathers and children. He's going to address servants and masters. Right, so living this new life, he's talked about it's putting on the new self. It's living our mind set on Christ, having, having, seeking the things that are above. This, it seems that Paul is describing, begins at home. The home is where you are 
most frequently your true self. <laughs> the home is where maybe you are most tempted to be your former self, right? The people that you live with are the ones that really know you the best, aren't they? You can put on, you can put a shower, you can put a shower, you can take a shower, you can get dressed, you can put on a, a nice face, you can do your makeup, you can put on you know, nice-looking clothing, and you can present yourself well. But the home is where people really know you. The home is really where the stink is, comes out. You can be patient and compassionate and kind out there, right, where image is at stake, reputation is at stake. But in the home, this is where Paul begins. This is where this kind of stuff is supposed to play out. And I read this week this quote. <clears throat> If the home is to be a means of grace, then it must be a place of rules. I thought that was interesting to me. That stood out to me. The alternative to, to rules is not freedom, but the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. <laughs> so Paul's not saying, hey, you've been living this new life in Christ. This is the new life that you've been called to. This is the, the new kind of way that you're to live. He lists out how does this life play out and not in the sense of you've been freed to be who you truly are means nothing. There's still order and rules and roles that, that Paul lists out that we have for us in, in the scripture. And in a sense, you can think about it as Paul's instructions here are what it means for husbands and wives and fathers and children and masters and bondservants to, to truly be free, to be the humans that Jesus has really designed us to be. So in the home, you are, you're true yourself. And if in Jesus, you have been set free in Christ to be who God has made you to be, this begins at the home. Does that make sense? I think this is why Paul, why Paul goes about it this way. And he's written, he's written in Christ. There's, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no circumcised or uncircumcised. Christ is all and in all, meaning that everyone has equal worth and value and status in the Messiah, in Christ. But that doesn't mean there's not different roles. There's not different distinction. There's not different callings that Jesus has given to his people. And as, and as Western Americans, we might think that freedom means the complete absence of rules, right? So if we're set free in Christ, that means we have no kind of rules. And Paul's saying, no, there's, there's rules in Christ. There's the law of Christ. That, that this is what he's describing here in this, in this passage. But that can be difficult for us as Americans to think. We think freedom, we think we can do whatever we want sometimes. Freedom is the absence of rules, Right, we have songs and, and, and movies that, that highlight this idea. We sing along with Elsa. No right, no wrong, no rules from me. I'm free. That's literally what she's saying. Let it go. Freedom in the Christian worldview, however, the, freedom, it, the perspective is that freedom is not so much the absence of rules, but living according to the rules of Christ, if you will. Not the absence of right or wrong, not the absence of any laws, but embracing the law of Christ, embracing the laws of Jesus, the way that Jesus has laid out life according to his design and to his will. So imagine a fish, fish in a fish tank, if you will. Just picture this in your mind. Imagine if this fish in the fish tank said, you know, these glass walls of this tank, they're oppressive. I'm feeling restricted. The water confined in this tank, it just feels like I have no freedom. I'm, I'm oppressed. I'm not truly free. In order to be free, I need to jump out of this tank where there's no constraints out there. That's when I'll be truly free. I need to get out of this water and explore the outside world. 
We know. What would happen if a fish did this? One, I don't know if a fish would have this thought. But for the sake of illustration, humor me. We know that if a fish jumps out of the tank of water, if a fish gets out of the tank and there's no water there, the fish would suffocate and flop around and die. The freedom that this fish would long for only produced death by suffocation. In order for the fish to truly be free, the fish must in, embrace the constraints of the design, the reality and the constraints of the water. This is, this is how Tim Keller describes it in his book, The Reason for God. In many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence and restrictions, the absence of restrictions, excuse me, it's finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. Those that fit with the reality of our nature and the world produce greater power and scope for our abilities and deeper joy and fulfillment. He asked the question, instead of insisting on freedom to create spiritual reality, shouldn't we be seeking to discover it and disciplining ourselves to live according to it? Right, so as Paul has described the new life of what it looks like to be in Jesus, he goes into what is the kind of life that practically plays out in the home for what it means to live according to his design. And that's what, that's what we're talking about here. And notice in these commands, these, these verses, these rules in the new Christian life are tied to seven out of the nine verses we have a mention of Jesus. It's fitting in the Lord, truly being free, becoming human means embracing these instructions. It means embracing the centrality of Christ. It means living according with his lordship in mind. So look at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Verse 22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but when sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 24, knowing that from the Lord, you will see their inheritance as reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Chapter four, verse one. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So we have nine verses here and seven references to Jesus, meaning that, that Jesus's lordship, his preeminence, his rule is to permeate and affect all relationships in life. In other words, these instructions are rooted in the Lord. Jesus is the Lord of every aspect and in the most basic areas of relationship, like husband and wife, like father and children, like in uh, slaves and masters. And notice that the men of the household, the husbands and fathers are told similar things. Don't be harsh. Don't provoke children. It's as if those in leadership are, he's, he's trying to apply what Jesus taught, that those who have been given authority in the kingdom are not to use their authority to rule over like they might do in, in the former kingdom, but to serve but to give themselves to reflect the humility and compassion and gentleness of Jesus. Now, households in our society might look very different than the society in the first century Roman world. There was a male patriarch in the Roman world that was highly authoritarian. Some scholars and commentators said that he had the power of life and death, the, the, the father did. Ultimate power over the wife, over the children, and any kind of servants that might be in that household. So, the command for husbands to love their wives was very countercultural. Some, some scholars, as I read this week, some commentators noted that there's not a single command in the ancient world for husbands to love their wives. 
that might baffle us, <laughs> right? Imagine going to CVS or to Bartels or Fred Meyer and getting a card that, and no card in any of the card aisle that says, I love you. That would be strange to us. Probably about as strange for us maybe now as going to CVS and seeing a card from a wife to a husband that says, I love to submit to you. You wouldn't see that. It's countercultural. But this is where Paul starts. And he actually starts by addressing the wife, which, which seems to indicate this, this status of there's no Jew nor Greek. There's Christ is all and in all. He's elevating. He's also going to address bondservants, which in, in, in the Roman world were thought of as kind of property, objects. They didn't have addresses. It was the, the rules, the, the codes of the culture were about masters rule over your servants. This is, this is interesting what Paul is doing here. It's different than what you might expect in typical Roman households. He says in verse 18 there, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, Paul doesn't tell the, the Christian Colossians who are wives, obey your husbands. This might be the, the expectation of the culture at the time. Wives were expected to obey their husbands. No, Paul says, submit. Other translations use the word be subject to. It's, it's talking about this voluntarily placing yourself under the husband's leadership. It's to be inclined to his leader. It's to have a, a posture of deference. And this is part of what it looks like to put on the character of Christ, to put off the former way of relating to your husband. The, the former ways that might be the temptation to rule over their husband. The former way that might be tempted to manipulate or to blackmail or to undercut the husband's leadership. Paul's saying, submit to your husbands. And it's not a call to be a slave or to be a doormat. It's a voluntary deference. It's not subservience. It's willingly following your husband's leadership as is fitting in the Lord. Other, other translations might say, as is proper. It's, it's to be marked by a sense of rightness or appropriateness. It's, it's a demonstration of the wife's faith in Jesus. And this phrase, as fitting in the Lord, could also indicate that there's, there's a limit to the scope of the call to submit to the husband. Does that make sense? G.K. Bill notes that the, the wife, the means, this means, as is fitting in the Lord, the wife's submission is not blind obedience, but is a kind of obedience to those things only that are consistent with living faithfully in relation to her Lord Jesus. So as fitting in the Lord could also be thought of as is harmonious with the Lord. It's in line with the Lord. It's it's not a willing following of things that are against what Jesus taught. It's harmonious with what Jesus taught. And then Paul directs to the husbands in verse 19. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. All right, so we've talked about this. Although Paul has affirmed the, the unity and the, the equality of value and worth, they still have different roles. They don't, well, husband and wife don't share the same function. So the wife is to willingly and joyfully out of faith defer to her husband. And the husband is to lovingly lay down his life for interest for his wife. It's this beautiful picture. Jesus has demonstrated what this love is, giving up his life for the sake of the other. It's a sacrificial giving of yourself for the good of the other. It's love is described as willingly laying down your interests, laying down your life. And Jesus has showed us in the gospel that this love is not a giving up. It's not a giving of yourself too, when the other person deserves it. It's not responsive in that sense. It's not because we are so lovable that Jesus loves us. 
No, Jesus loves us, not because we are lovely, but to make us lovely, right? So this, this is where the Apostle Paul is just getting at the husband. It's not kind of a responsive. It's like, well, if, you're, if your wife is following your leadership, leadership joyfully, then you love her. No, this is husbands, love your wives, don't be harsh with them. Paul elsewhere has described what love is. He has defined it. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And this doesn't mean, though, however, that that husbands, that wives aren't to love their husbands. (laughs) Right? Wives, I don't think you're reading it that way. But you couldn't say, well, Paul doesn't call me to love you, so you just have to love me. No, Paul is talking about here that the husbands take the lead in love. The husband takes the initiative in love. The husband uses the authority to serve. This is what it means, expressing the authority through sacrifice and selfless care. It says, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. And then harsh could be, don't become embittered to them. This word harsh can also be used in describing a manner of authority that's marked by oppressive rule. It's a manner of authority that's used kind of in an authoritarian way. And Paul is saying, that kind of leadership, no, don't be harsh with them. Don't use your, your authority. It's not oppressive. It's not authority to rule for selfish gain. The authority is expressed in considering your wife's needs above your own. That's, that is a high calling. And the mothers and the wives in the room say, yes, amen. Husbands, love me. You have been called to, right? But again, I want to I highlight and point out that these two commands are not dependent upon one another. Sometimes I've been tempted in my own marriage to do this. Based on the, the, the perception of the willingness of Stephanie to, to follow or to defer or to yield, that might affect the, the willingness to show love and sacrifice for her. And Paul's saying these commands are not dependent upon one another. Do not become harsh with your wife when she's failed you. Don't become resentful or bitter towards her when she's not living up to the expectations or what you wanted. When your wife doesn't live up to your hopes and dreams, don't become resentful or bitter or angry towards her. When she turns out to be just like you are, truly human. The call to patience and compassion and humility and gentleness does not just kind of stop. It doesn't end with the call to be a husband. It's very much in line with this, this continual growth and Knowledge of reflecting Jesus looks like taking the lead and loving your wife, laying down your, your needs, your desires along her. And in this way, the husband and wife are to be a continual support to one another. Coming together, giving, giving to each other this kind of encouragement to continually grow and reflect the character of Christ. Continually grow and to reflect the, the husband and laying down his life for the sake of his wife and the, the wife willingly coming under and coming alongside the husband. This is a beautiful dynamic of gospel reality. This is a dynamic, I think, if the, if the church would display in the marriage, that is very compelling. Because our culture does not quite understand this kind of dynamic. Do they? The word submission is heard with doormat. And it's not a doormat wife or a doormat husband. This is a beautiful call to gospel realities and dynamics that is made possible because of Jesus. This is a vision of marriage that is very compelling to me. 
against the cultural norms of a dormant wife or a dormant husband's husband and wives are to be in a relationship where they are calling and building each other up to be who they truly have been called to be in Jesus. So Paul has addressed husbands and wives, and now he addresses children and fathers. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I don't think we have any children here. We're all children. Yes. Says, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And then look what he says in verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, the word fathers there can, can also refer to fathers and mothers. But, but there's a weight, there's an importance, there's a responsibility given to the father in teaching and disciplining and bringing up the children. And Paul says, don't provoke your children. Other translations might say exasperate or aggravate or embitter or antagonize. And again, it doesn't mean that mothers are off the hook in this. <laughs> Many a mother that can provoke their children. One of the most helpful commentaries that I've been studying through the book of Colossians has been by a guy named N.T. Wright, Bishop N.T. Wright. And it's a lengthy quote here, but I, I love the way he described this vision of parenting and fathers and mothers in, in the home according to the new life in Christ. Listen to, what, listen to what he writes. He talks about what does it mean to provoke your children? This is what he says. Paul refers to the constant nagging or belittling of a child, a sure sign of insecurity, this time on the part of the parent. The refusal to allow children to be people in their own right instead of carbon copies of their parents or their parents' fantasies. Children treated like this become discouraged. They come, become dispirited, continually hearing both verbally and non-verbally that they are of little value, and they come to believe and, and sink that deep down in self-hatred or overreact with boastful but anxious self-assertion. The parent's duty is, in effect, to live out the gospel to the child, that is, to assure their child that they are loved and accepted and valued for who they are, not for who they ought to be, not for who they should have been or might, only if they would try a little harder to become. Obedience must never be made the condition of parental love. A love so conditioned would not deserve the name. When the parent is obedient to the vocation of genuine love, the child's obedience may become, like that of the Christian to God, a glad and loving response. Such obedience is pleasing to the Lord, not merely because he desires order, but because he wants all his people to follow this often paradoxical, self-denying, Christ-like road to true and mature selfhood. Oh, I just thought that was so beautifully written that I couldn't say it better myself. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Parents, don't belittle your children by talking to them in a manner that doesn't reflect the gentleness, compassion, and kindness of Jesus. Right? Many problems occur when parents forget and they confess a gospel belief, yet the gospel is not functional in their life. It's not lived out to their children. Right? They forget the, the gospel dynamics of how God and Jesus has related to you. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, Paul writes. It's kindness that leads to new behavior and change. It's not provoking. It's not embittering. It's not antagonizing. It's not God's anger. It's not God raising his voice, yelling and shouting, which was so often as we can do as parents. We just think I'll change the behavior if I raise my voice, if I yell. 
not marked by the, the new age, but the old age of discouragement, not encouragement, of tearing down, not building up. As reflected in the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments given to Moses, Paul writes in these lines, children obey their parents. This pleases the Lord. It's a reflection, as N.T. Wright described there, it's a reflection of Jesus who was obedient to his Father in everything. It's a demonstration of doing everything in word and deed in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's how the gospel can be played out in the lives of, of children. So we've had first group, husbands and wives, to the dynamics there. We've had the second group, parents, fathers, and children, the dynamics that are at play there. And our third group, bondservants and masters. Look at me at verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Paul is demonstrating this new status that the bondservants have now in Christ. He addresses them. He instructs them. They aren't tools. They have a moral responsibility. And in this ancient world, slaves and bond servants, they didn't have an inheritance. There's speculation that these, these bond servants might not be known for being hard workers because they get no profit from their work. They weren't kind of getting any profit for the work they might do. The system that might not be very familiar with us as we, we, we work and we get paid. But Paul's saying here is as Jesus is the Lord of the household, he's also Lord of this work arena. We might think about these principles that Paul lays out here for bondservants and masters as employer and employee. Those are the principles that are at play here. So they are to work hard even when their lowercase m master is not watching. Why? Because ultimately they're not working for that master. They're working for the, the uppercase m master in heaven. Even when your boss isn't over in your shoulder, even when your supervisor isn't watching you. You work because the uppercase master is always present. He's always attentive. And the reward isn't money. It isn't working up a ladder. The reward is an inheritance from the Lord. It's a beautiful promise he's given to these bondservants that might not have gotten an inheritance, that now their inheritance is so much greater. The inheritance is in the Lord, given to them by the Lord. And he says there, work heartily. Work with sincerity of heart. Paul doesn't have in mind here the kind of effort or an energy that says, what's the least amount of energy and effort I can put into this to not get punished? What's the least amount of work I can do? What's the threshold of where the boss will notice and I'll get some sort of corrective discipline? This kind of attitude doesn't reflect a knowledge. It doesn't reflect a belief. It doesn't reflect an awareness of what Paul is describing here, that we are working for the Lord. This kind of attitude doesn't reflect an awareness that there is a master, there is a creator God who will administer justice. And so Christians, I'd say we are to work hard, whatever we do. We are to work sincerely because of our very reverence for the Lord. Because our awareness, our worship, our respect, our reverence is for him and he is our master. Therefore, we're to work in such a way that demonstrates that very belief in the way we work in the present with our current masters, our current bosses, our current employers. There's no meaningless work in this way. All work is to be done with sincerity of heart because it's work that's done for the Lord. 
hearing the Lord. Whatever you do, he says, do it from the heart. as something done for the Lord and not for people. Work at it with all your heart. Work, therefore, for the bondservant in Paul's day, as for us as employees, is to be an act of worship. It's not as though we have, we have our Sunday day, we have our time where we worship Jesus, we're gathering together and we're singing and we're hearing the word of God and we're praying together, and then we move from the spiritual into the secular world. Now, what Paul is describing here, he's saying, this all is an act of worship. And the way that you work throughout the week is the same kind of, out of reverence and fear and giving thanks to the Lord that you do on Sunday morning. The manner of it might just look a little different. But it looks like working hard. It looks like working sincerely. It looks like working from the heart. Right? Imagine in this time a, a bondservant working hard, heartily, with all their heart, obeying their masters in everything with sincerity, not getting paid. Yet they're still working hard. What would this be a testimony to? The fact that Jesus is Lord. Amen? And what would it look like for us who might be working and we have a job where we do get paid to demonstrate this kind of faith that Jesus is Lord of all? Pastors, electricians, teachers, engineers, sales rep, nurses don't ultimately work for hospitals, firms, companies, school districts, unions, churches. They work as a representative of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. The the focus of when you work and how you work is to be with a focus on Christ. These bond servants, these employers, they're, they're confronted here with a warning and with an encouragement. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that they have done. <laughs> and imagine the kind of terrible masters that maybe a bond servant would have met Jesus and experienced life in him and placed their faith in him, yet they worked for a master who was not sharing the same faith a master who didn't treat them with equality and with love and respect and gentleness. This is a comfort that the bondservant of the employee, when you have a horrible boss, he will be repaid. And the warning is there that God will repay. Don't undercut, (laughs) don't do little things in passive aggressive ways. Work like you're working for me. Jesus is saying, there's no excuse for lazy work, half-hearted work, lack of sincerity in the work. But if you are a boss and you are in this new life in Christian faith, chapter four, verse one, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. The beautiful dynamic is both the servant and the master are working. They're operating, they're relating with a knowledge and understanding a worship and a gratitude for this Jesus, this master in heaven. So you see there in, in all three kind of spheres of, of life, of household life and their time are, are kind of the basic relationships that we might have in, in life with, with marriage, with parenting, and with work. That the way that these are to be done, the way that, that these relationships relate to each other is to be done so with a dynamic that says, Jesus is Lord of all. That I'm doing this as fitting in the Lord or out of fear of the Lord or pleasing the Lord. So this perspective of Jesus as Lord, Jesus as preeminent, Jesus as central is to permeate all the relationships that we have in life. And this is how the new life plays itself out, right? Let's, let's summarize. What has Paul talked about so far? Wives, submit fittingly. Husbands, love, give yourself selfless care and concern for your wife, sacrifice for them. Children, obey to please the Lord. Parents, discipline in gentleness and humility, not provoking, not 
not exacerbating. Do so in a way that doesn't provoke them. Bond servants, workers, employees, work heartily, diligently, sincerely. Employers, bosses, act with justice and grace. Don't show favoritism. And this is all possible, Paul says, I think, because of what he has written previously, that this is for Jesus and because of Jesus. It is fitting in the Lord. It pleases the Lord. It's out of fear for the Lord, for Jesus. As we're serving the Lord Christ, we have a master in heaven. In other words, we live out of these instructions in response to Jesus, out of worship to him and giving thanks to him in the process. So when the gospel captures your heart and your mind and you've been gripped by these realities of grace, you will want to live your life in such a way that demonstrates these very realities and beauties. That's what Paul is talking about. When you're captivated by the beauty of what Jesus has done, you will want to live your, way, your life in such a way that demonstrates who Jesus is and how great he is and the difference that he makes in your life. So a wife will willingly and joyfully come under and follow the leadership of her husband who has been entrusted by Jesus to lead the home and marriage. And she does this as an act of worship, knowing that it's because of the gospel I get to do this. This very act of faith is a demonstration of the gospel because it's out of obedience to Jesus, I voluntarily do this. We have been given the freedom and the creativity and the opportunity to reflect the gospel in everyday life. And Paul has, has given these instructions in such a way to order them in a way that reflects these realities. So practically we ask ourselves, how do I live out of these gospel realities? How do I reflect the gospel in the way that I live? Amen? How do I reflect the gospel in the way that I parent my children? When I correct my children, is it do what I say because I tell you so? I'm the parent, you're the child. Is it a coming alongside the child and explaining, you have been entrusted into my care to demonstrate the very realities of the gospel to you? And when you disobey, and there will be consequences, there will be discipline, but the discipline is done in such a way of instructing in the Lord because ultimately as a parent, I am seeking to instruct my children to, to see me like they might see God the Father. The generosity and the kindness and the, the grace and the mercy of God. I want my kids to have a better reflection of who God is because of the way that I parent them. I want my wife to have a better understanding of the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ by the way that I relate to her and love her. Wives, I want my husband to have a better understanding of the gospel by the way that I joyfully and willingly follow him. Husbands, if you're moved by this self-giving love of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, that, that you were not loved because you were lovable, and, and you're not loved because you're lovely, but Jesus loves you to make you lovely, this changes the very motivational center of your life, the very heart of your life. Your heart is affected in such a way where you, you want to put down your life for the sake of your wife. When employees are captured in such a way that, that they see how Jesus has worked for us, we want to demonstrate that very act of Jesus in the way that we work for others. When the perspectives of Jesus and the priorities of the kingdom permeate your thoughts, you think as an employer boss, how can my work be a worshipful reflection of Jesus? 
Jesus has showed us what this looked like. Jesus submitted to the Father in everything for the sake of the church. He told the Father when faced with the realities of his death, of his suffering, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus loved the church. He was not harsh towards sinners and sufferers. His heart for the sufferers is a heart of gentleness, of lowliness, of humility. He showed his great love for us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. That's not lovely. Jesus looked at you in your worst moment with grace and compassion and love. We didn't need to do anything to earn his love. This love was not dependent upon our worthiness or our loveliness. And when husbands are gripped with those realities, we say, I'm going to love my wife, especially when she's not lovable. Jesus was the obedient child, the, the obedient child to God in everything as he lived his life in full fullness, pleasing the Lord in everything that he did. He did all that the father asked him. He was the faithful representative. He feared the Lord with sincerity of heart. He took the wrongdoing that we've done upon himself. He took the punishment we get. The God of creation, the Lord of all is, is a God of justice. And the justice was done when Jesus took the wrongdoing that we deserved in our place. He took the debt and we gained the profit. And he worked not because we were worthy of this work, but he was working for the justice and righteous father. And when we were captured by these realities, we want to say, yes, Jesus, make those realities true in my life. When you see this love of Jesus towards you, displayed towards you, you begin to ask God, God, would everything I do in word and deed be done so in the name of this Jesus? Be done so as a reflection of this Jesus. Be done so in dependence upon this Jesus as a representative of this Jesus. And Lord, would you help us to do this? We need help, amen? I don't naturally love my wife. Children don't naturally obey their parents. Parents don't naturally respond in gentleness and compassion instead of provoking. We need the help of Jesus to do this. Amen. And I pray that as we struggle forward in these ways, as we fall forward, we, we are asking, Lord, would this, these instructions, this vision, be true in the way that we live in the basic areas of our relationship? Even when we fail, and as we fail, we are asking the Lord Jesus to make these realities true in my life. And would you help us, Jesus? We want to be dependent upon you. We are dependent upon you. Because church, we are the unworthy servants of the best master. The most generous father. Jesus, as the song says, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. May we be resolved by this divine grace of our father to give ourselves our whole personhood to Jesus. And give our lives in such a way that our actions and our relations align with these instructions from Jesus. Church family, whatever role we might find ourselves in this morning, whatever instructions might be applicable to us as we sit here in our seats or as we listen online, may all the worship and gratitude and thanksgiving be directed to the same source, Jesus Christ. May all we do be done in worship to him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and his church says amen. Let's pray. Jesus, your mercy and compassion is unfailing. Your mercy is daily given to us. You are tender and kind and gentle towards us. We praise you this morning. We bless you for the beauty and the invitation and the glorious promises of the gospel. In the gospel, we find that rebels like ourselves can find forgiveness. In the gospel, we find liberty for the captives and sight to the blind and redemption, the orphans. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus because of what Jesus has done, and we ask that you re-impress the image of Jesus on us. Help our souls to be captivated and gripped by you, Jesus. Help us to set our minds on you, Jesus, your kingdom, where you rule and reign over all things. Help us to reflect this kingdom of heaven on earth. Help us to be moved by this gospel of grace so that we forsake the former ways of living, former habits. Rid us of anger and impatience and harshness and laziness and self-centeredness and dominance and utter cutting, undercutting. Help us to be gentle and humble and compassionate with all people. Help us not only be students of the gospel, but examples of it. Would you bless the marriages of this church and cause them to flourish as the gospel is worked out in their lives, as husbands lovingly give themselves up for the good of their wives and wives joyfully and voluntarily submit to the leadership of their husbands? Would you cause parents and children fathers and mothers and their children to flourish in the way that they discipline and love and exemplify the character of Jesus, that we would do this in a way that pleases you, Jesus. Would you cause others, Father, by your grace, to be curious of this outworking of the gospel in our homes and in our workplaces? Would you give us the faith to believe that your lordship extends over every aspect of our life? And would we be mindful of that this week? Yes, that you be with us as we seek to apply and work out these instructions. And thank you for hearing us and being with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.